Welcome to Impact the World, the show for and about creatives, change makers, and entrepreneurs. This is a conversation episode where a special guest shares with me what they are creating and the behind the scenes journey of their experience. I first knew of Regina Meredith because I was a guest on her show at Gaia.com and she has interviewed me five times over the years. And Regina is the kind of person that every time I would mention I was going to do an interview at Gaia to a friend or a colleague, and I would mention Regina's name, everyone would go, oh, I love Regina. She commands that kind of respect because she's an incredible interviewer. And as you'll learn in this conversation that we had, I wanted to find out a bit more about her journey and put her on the other chair. Um, and let her talk about her fantastic book that she released last year called Accidentally On Purpose. So if you're already a fan of Regina, I highly recommend getting her book. If she is new to you, then sit back and enjoy this conversation with one of the best interviewers that we have out there in the conscious field, Regina Meredith. I am more than thrilled to have Regina Meredith be here as my first guest for the podcast. And many of you will know Regina from her work on Open Minds for Gaia TV, her own website, reginameredith.com. But Regina actually has a very long career of various roles that is absolutely fascinating. And that's why I'm so glad that you wrote Accidentally On Purpose. <laughs> Tripping Through Life with Regina. Yeah, Tripping Through Life is accurate. <laughs> and thank you. I feel totally honored to be your first guest. Of course. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, I really applaud what you're doing. You have this beautiful studio you've created here, and you're making it possible to help creators create through this work you're doing. It's really exciting. Awesome. Well, that's the idea. Yeah. And I will say to you that, you know, uh, and I'm sure this is true for you and possibly many of our listeners, you have friends who write books and they give you the books or they send you the books. And I have this enormous stack of books at home that I haven't even read. So I was really happy that you had written this, but I was amazed how good it is. And it's not, that's not because I doubted you, but I was reading it going, oh my God, if I didn't know who you were and, and, and didn't admire your work, know you as a friend, I think what's so powerful for me about this book is it's the story of a life so far and your journey it's a story of a spiritual quest and seeing the spirituality underneath your life, but it's also very funny too. You have had quite the life, and if, if I may, I want to just read something at the end that you wrote in the final chapter, which is called Many Hats, which really sums up your life journey. You write, I have worn many hats, the barrel racer hat as a fat, fake cowgirl, the hair helmet of the news anchor, the metaphoric toque of a home chef, and the tinfoil hat of those on the fringe of conspiracy. It's time for the hats to come off and stand as myself to throw off the images imposed by others and reveal what has simply been there all along. You yes. did it. You did it brilliantly. So Thank you. What compelled you to bring this into the world? Well, as you know from reading the book, oftentimes I, I will wake up and there will be a message in that crossover place just before you're fully awake, just as you're cresting back to consciousness, and you simply understand that you're to do something. And at some point along the way, my guides just said, you need to write a book. This was years ago, and I thought, why? 
as you know from the book, sometimes I'll argue with my guidance, whether it's my higher self or an external guide, I'll argue with them a bit, and then I'll usually go their way. And in this case, they just said, write a book. And I thought, well, okay. I mean, is there a purpose for it? Mm, not necessarily. Just, just write it, and you'll see. And so I wrote it originally. I started writing it a number of years ago, and then kind of put it aside, and then actually did a publishing contract with a Japanese publisher because the Japanese had a real thirst for metaphysical material. So we, they, I had to adjust it according to their audience's desires. And that was a book that has some of the information in this one called Solo Journey. But it was really weaving it. It was trying to serve too many masters. Mm. I wasn't that happy with it because I just wanted to share the story. And I couldn't share the first 35 years of it in that format. So that what happened right when I signed the contract, Fukushima happened. And that contract, um, they had paid an advance on it and everything. The contract was essentially dead because their facility was dead. They weren't able to publish anymore. They couldn't get paper. There were a lot of issues after Fukushima. So that just kind of, I put it out there. It was kind of quietly there if anyone wanted to read it. But I was happy to take it down, let's say, and put the real story up. And that's what this one is. Right. Well, what I love about it is how honest you are. And I know that about you from life. But... I think for many people who have perhaps seen Open Minds, which is, I've met you in that incarnation of your life, that, mm -hmm. that period, and so I meet many people who will say, oh, I love Regina's Open Minds show. You really not only peel back the curtain on life events, but your feelings and some, some really tough things that happen. And, and, and one thing that really struck me, uh, which I didn't know until reading the book, is you had this really difficult family estrangement, age two, Mm -hmm. where you were basically sent away from your family. Could you, could you share a little bit about that? Yeah, it was an accident. No one meant for this to happen. What happened is my parents, my mother had come from Minnesota at 19, my father from Texas at 19. They met in a boarding house in a poor part of San Francisco, down in what was called the Tenderloin. And uh, you know where I that know is. The tenderloin. <laughs> I think it was on Eddy Street, actually. Uh -huh. And um, they, they met at this particular boarding house and fell in love. And within a short period of time, on New Year's Eve, got married. And then within two months, were pregnant with me. And this was not this was not planned. Um, this was something that. Uh, you know, the birth control day wasn't exceptional. Mm -hmm. And so my mother had designs on becoming a singer. She worked for, I believe, the telephone company at the time and loved being a working woman. And uh, so when I came along, it was still manageable. And then uh, a couple years later, well, I think these were both Valentine's Day festivities, considering my sister and I were both born nine months after Valentine's <laughs> Day. <laughs> um, my mother was pregnant again. Now, too, this is a little different. So they didn't have family because they'd come from elsewhere. They didn't have a lot of friends yet. They were still very new to San Francisco. And so when my sister came along and it was time for her to be born, when her due date had arrived, um, they decided the only way my dad could continue working, because men didn't stop working for childcare in the day, was to put me somewhere where someone could watch me. And it turned out to be a children's receiving home because they knew a lady kind of that worked there. So she could just come in and look at me and report back if I was doing okay. And uh, But the problem is that's where children are adopted out from. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's not a... a 
it's, it's not a very nurturing environment, let's just say that. And so I was just like the other tiny little people there, except I wasn't waiting to be adopted. But they, the way it's structured is for that. So a couple of events happened around the sheer setup of the facility that should have never happened, but it changed our family's dynamic permanently. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for you, being as sensitive as you know you are now, mm -hmm. what, what struck me when I was reading that chapter was your vivid recall and description of what you were feeling and, and, and you being able to see how that has imprinted your oh, whole yeah. life, which is so powerful because I think that isn't spoken about enough in society. But you have this vivid recall, which is interesting given you, as the years have gone on into your life, you've become very, very interested, but also a guide of regression for people. And yes going to other times, other lives. Uh, so yeah. I, I, saw that, I found that very interesting. Well, was... probably, you know, oftentimes, what do you say? Uh, teachers teach what they need to learn best. To... So maybe in the case of doing that stint in my life as a regression therapist, it was part of that. And it was through regression that I actually recovered it. Because I have a pretty good memory dating back to about a year and a half. I remember being with the babysitter at a year and a half and what it was like with her in her yard. And she spoke French only. And, uh, but, and, and I can remember after that, but I couldn't remember, I couldn't remember my parents ever picking me up, which was a few weeks after they dropped me off. Circumstances, which I explain in the book, occurred. So I ended up there for quite a long time. But this one event happened where they came to check in on me and were told, you can't take her home because there's an ear infection in the nursery. So they brought me into this room that had I remembered it as glass windows. My father remembers it as a glass door, but there was glass. And it was an area you could put the child isolated. And normally, for parents who are looking in on a child to adopt them, there's no connection. Hmm. The child's, there are adults looking in the door or through the window, and the child's playing and doing their thing while they can observe the child. But these were my parents, and they had a new baby with them. And I, I remember screaming and clawing at the door to get out of there. And they didn't know what to do. I mean, they're 22. They're not empowered parents yet. And so they turned around and walked away with the baby. And there was that was it. It's kind of like my life ended. It was a second kind of abandonment, so to speak, yeah. after being dropped off. And everything did change, which is the very first chapter of one sentence in the book. Everything changed after that. And, and still the effects remain to this day. Mm. You learn how to be extraordinarily independent. Yes. Well, Which has the good well in, so many <laughs> in ways. some ways, and it also is problematic <laughs> in others. You you share something later on in the book, which really I thought was beautiful. You say, "My life strategy is simple. If you do not have the power to change something, then develop the grace to accept it. Mm. If it causes you personal pain and robs you of peace, distance yourself from it if possible. This does not preclude working on the inner planes toward a resolution." That is true, mm -hmm. and um, I can be accused of oftentimes trying to transcend something. And a lot of people look at that transcendent state as the idealized state, right? Yeah. And it does have those properties to it, and it certainly distances you from pain. But working on it on the other, uh, on the inner planes, that's fine. But I have difficulty working with it down in the down in the gutter of the emotions if it's not something that I have. Uh, been able to almost strategically figure out a path toward. So then I'll just go into the metaphysical understanding of it, and I can go into a great acceptance with that, even very difficult things. 
So it's interesting. You, we, we've talked about this. Mm -hmm. We've talked about spirituality, how there can be this escape sometimes. Mm -hmm. And yet, I, while I completely understand how we can compartmentalize and fragment, something that my guide said to me several years ago about me when I was struggling with some stuff is they said, "You, you, you walk between two worlds." And yes. that's always going to be tricky. Yes. And I also feel that there are some people who just come in open, wired to be sensitive to universal energy. And it's not necessarily always that it's that we can't access our emotions. It's that this is perhaps the, the, wider, the wider world that we experience too. I think it depends on the person. It depends on the person. I'm more comfortable certainly with that world and, and can, like I said, can find, if I can look at the grace of the, the hidden realities of something and it has some kind of clarity or logic to it, I can accept things that are really difficult mm -hmm. with a relative amount of grace. Smaller things sometimes that are kind of shocking to my system, I don't handle well at all, mm -hmm. you know? Like if someone's mad at me or yells at me or something, mm -hmm. it's just like, It'll destroy my day for a while. I, I can't recover quickly from that. It, it's almost like um, a trauma. Have you got better as time has gone on with that? No, not particularly. Right. No, I, I don't deal well with that. So, and it's funny, it's circumstantially oriented. Mm. Because I can go to Italy, for example, where everyone yells at everyone else, where it's simply um, a means of communication. And I can get right up on in it, but it's not personal. And it's just volume oriented, really, you know, like arguing over something over a coffee counter or whatnot, or giving someone change. That doesn't bother me. That, that's just kind of typical, very garden variety. But if it's personal and it's coming toward me with a lot of velocity, I kind of go into a type of shock, so to speak. Yeah. I can relate to that myself. And it's interesting as you, as you talk about Italy, I think that maybe that's the expectation of the pattern. So yeah, we right. think everything's fine. Right. Whereas if, if it isn't the expectation yeah. of the pattern or what's normally happening, yeah. then that kind of eruption is very jarring. Yeah, I don't like it when people are unhappy yeah. either. I always try to fix it and being right. a fixer is not a good idea. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to flash forward a little mm -hmm. bit to how most of us know you as a journalist. Mm -hmm. How on earth did you basically in your chapter nine, you talk about a journalist is born. Uh, you went to KCRA TV and literally, I'm quoting from the book, you say, I managed to get the job with no experience whatsoever. How on earth did that happen? Oh gosh, I actually was given the hook by a professor when I told that story to a journalism class <laughs> at Kansas State University when I was on NBC. Um, I told them this story and simply put in the day, they didn't check up on you that much. I mean, journalisms were guys and journalists, you know, were newspaper guys in hats. And a lot of those guys transitioned over from newspapers over to television when television came about. Mm -hmm. And so you did, telejournalism wasn't really a career path yet. And at that time, Joan, the woman who's known as Joan London, mm -hmm. okay, she, Joni Blunden was her name. She ended up for many, many, many years as the host of Good Morning America in, right. in this country. Well, Joan was there at the same time. She had been, I think she owned a modeling agency and she was gracious and pretty and she was hired to do a consumer report. I was hired to do sports and I'd literally written about five or six articles for a local newspaper on a dare in Tahoe on a basketball league. I was following a basketball league and I said, well, no, I had journalism experience that I had... Um, studied journalism in college, which I had for a very short period of time. And basically, I just kept hopping from one thing to the next. 
the opportunity came to do this little sports article. I thought I could do that. So then one day, my husband at the time, I married very young, said, well, why don't you go down and see about getting a job there as a ski reporter? Because I was skiing every day. And um, I said, I can't do that. I don't, know, I don't know anything about television. I haven't graduated. I don't have a degree. And he said, basically, well, what's wrong with you that you wouldn't give it a try anyway? It was a challenge. It was a dare. And after I stopped crying because I thought I couldn't do it, but I felt like I had to do something, um, I said, fine, can you get an interview for me? And so he called and he bluffed his way through with the news director and said, yes, we have this young um, sports writer up at Lake Tahoe, I think could be a good addition to your team. So I went down for an audition uh, at that time as a ski reporter and um, expecting nothing would come of it. So it's like, it's just a drive down to Sacramento from Lake Tahoe and it's mm -hmm. over with and I'm done with this challenge. And I was hired on the spot. And I thought, that's not, that's not supposed to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you didn't need a degree. You didn't need anything. You just had to literally do something like that, show up and say, hey, I'd like to give it a try. And if you had a news director that was open-minded, and if you were a pretty young woman in the mm -hmm. day, you would have doors open for you. Because that's really all that was required. Yeah. And it turned out I had a knack for writing and production and communication, but I didn't know it yet. So how, how quickly was that evident to you? Like uh, with your first few jobs when you were hired, were you nervous? Did you feel out of your depth? Oh, I was or? sick to my stomach. Yeah. No, I was really ready to throw up before the shows. It was horrible. Yeah. It was so painful because I'm an introvert. I didn't want to be on camera. It wasn't my idea. I didn't want to be on Can television. Can we just pause there? Because I think for some people, that, that's going to be a bit of a, huh? Regina's an introvert, you yeah. know, so can we, I just want to pick up on that. So you're an introvert and yet you can go on camera and do the work that you do and speak to the people that you do on camera. Yes, because you're, it's you and a, a, a television camera lens. There's, it's not a crowd. There aren't people staring at you. There's no one there. The studio is empty. There's someone in a control booth and a couple people behind cameras, but it's still just you. And you have to get the psychological mechanism down to be able to <clears throat> bypass the notion that thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of people, or in the case of NBC, millions are watching live at that moment. And my mechanism was to understand there may be millions of people, but these people are sitting alone or maybe with one other person in their home with their television on and listening to me talk to them. So I always imagined I was talking to a person. And so that helped me get over that gap. But, oh, I was horrible, sick to my stomach. Everything was whacked out, you know, in terms of my whole system. I'd run to the bathroom after the broadcast. It was just awful. But I love what you just said because it's such great advice. Um, it's something we've talked about when I've trained people for Impact the World, especially people who are beginning to work with a camera, especially nowadays many people are using video. Right. It, it is a person. Don't think of it as a piece of technology. Just speak to a person. Exactly. Or, or the group of people. Good, that's very good advice. Um, yeah. So you're, you're very quickly progressed into NBC. I did. I was, um, I think I, I had a certain presence. I wouldn't say I was a great broadcaster, but I was pretty good mm. considering I had absolutely no training. I was pretty good mm. and I got better as I went along. But what I was good at, I was a very good producer and writer. I could create um, uh, the mini insert features that we did, which were usually kind of, you know, life experiences of the athletes and so forth, up close and personal type of segments. 
So what does that yeah. entail as the producer and writer of those segments? Like for anyone listening who doesn't necessarily know what the mechanics of being the producer <clears throat> of a segment is, how, how, how do you produce a segment? Well, in this case, this was sports. Mm. And I was the addition, so I was the sport, uh, the weekend sports anchor for KCRA, which was the 20th largest market. It wasn't a small market. I didn't enter that way. These guys were highly paid, the weekday guys, the 5 o'clock, 6 and 11 guys, were paid a lot of money, and they had a lot of help. They had a team. Weekends was a stripped-down budget. I was paid $25 a show, and I did three shows a day on the weekend. And then I had one assistant producer who would be an intern. And that's it. And so uh, they would say, you need to go out and cover this story. That's it. I didn't have any training. So I would go out and simply talk to the person with the camera rolling and start feeling their story. And I think that's where what I do now has always been there. I would touch in. They'd say, go out and do an interview with this, like, B-League boxer. I remember this was the first big one for me. It was a, a young guy in his 20s who was, I think, a bantamweight, but he had some promise. Uh, he wasn't there quite yet, but there was some promise for a fight that was happening in a couple of days. They said, yeah, go out and get the story with him. See how he feels about the fight. And so normally with the men who go out and do those, and by the way, I was only the second or third woman in the country to do sports. So there weren't any female feminine models for how you treat the subject at the time. I would do the back and forth thing. The guys would say, so tell us, Pete, how's it going? Yeah, good. Okay, what do we think your odds are tomorrow night? Yeah, okay, good. And that was the way they did those. And they thought I was going to do that. And so I'm listening to him and thinking, this guy believes his hopes and dreams are going to come true by punching in someone's face. What kind of A, courage, and B, almost delusion does that take? So I was fascinated with his personality and really started digging and got the most sensitive, beautiful story, brought it back and created a feature piece. I put Simon Garfunkel's The Boxer over it because mm. you didn't have to have rights if it's a news show and made this really beautiful piece. And it was my, the first piece I'd ever done. I just figured it out on the fly. And I remember the, the surprise of it was the men in the department said, well, you didn't have to go that far because it, I would always take it to what I thought was the best potential story and it made their storytelling look bad because they didn't put any effort into it. And so I was not rewarded for that, but I could tell very early on, whatever it is, I know how to help someone tell their story. And that makes sense that the men would be threatened by that, both in terms of what you were able to uh, draw out of the boxer or what the boxer felt comfortable connecting. Oh, he told me all kinds of things. I was going to say, yeah. and, and, and both that that wasn't their wheelhouse or their comfort zone, but also that you'd done something exceptional and different. So that's, that, that leads me into one of the things that you touch on in the book in, in quite a few chapters, which I think is fascinating, is you were a pioneering woman in an industry at a time, what I think of the movie Anchorman, which I know is kind of silly comedy, but when I was reading the book, it made me remember seeing that movie 10 years ago, and I thought, wow, Regina was, um, what's her name, the actress's name, who I, I forget her name now. In Ron Christina Burgundy? Applegate, yeah, right. Yeah, so. Oh, well, it, that is how it was. I mean, I could tell you stories about that. You listen to the Me Too movement now, and it's, you know, some of the women in the Me Too movement um, that are criticized say, that's just how it was done. Yeah. That's just, that was the reality of the day. And I can say that was the reality of the day. Now, don't get me wrong. I was not sexually harassed um, in any obvious ways, except, you know, 
a, a cameraman who kind of would be looking my legs up and down, put his hand on my knee, and I'd slap him and say, Bruce, knock it off. You're married. Cut it out. And he'd go, oh, yeah, okay. And that was kind of the extent yeah. of it. You just deal with it on the fly. But other than that, there was no, I never had any serious pressure applied, but a lot of women did. My character isn't the kind that men easily want to or try to take advantage of, and I don't know why, but they just seem to cut I me. I would imagine they're both intimidated by you and they respect you. In, in there a, seemed to be, in a it certain, seemed to be. Yeah. But then speaking of the Ron Burgundy thing, yes, I was in a co-anchor situation with someone similar to Ron Burgundy, and it, it was hard. Um, in fact, behind the scenes, they asked me to take over the show. And I thought, that's not fair. But then when it was time to cut the budget, they said, so sorry, we can't have a solo woman anchoring and we're down to one anchor, so it's going to be him, not you. So right. we're not renewing your contract. That happens too. But then on the rising side, um, and I wrote about this in the book, many years later I found out that the movie Up Close and Personal was actually based on my relationship with the person that wrote it, who was a very very uh, influential person in Hollywood. And our relationship was as agent, you know, and he represented me as uh, talent. And um, that showed that kind of stubbornness, living at Lake Tahoe, I don't want to do things your way, part of my personality in the first half of the movie. And then the second half where she became a wildly successful, um, I think it was a Washington DC or, or New York news anchor. By that time, I'd already dropped off the map on that in that career path right yeah because i was stubborn well and and this is interesting because what what blew my mind reading the book not knowing too much of your history before meeting you through conscious media network and open minds and your work pioneering consciousness spirituality metaphysics mm -hmm. is how you managed to bring those topics into mainstream television kind of almost accidentally and a little bit under the not you weren't doing anything but deliberate. On purpose. But you were doing it on purpose, <laughs> but it's it was blew my mind that you said you had a channeler on the air in on, on very traditional TV. What a couple News. a couple over a couple of decades ago this was. Oh, this was three decades three ago. Three decades ago. Three more than that now. Wow. I um yes. First of all, I had a news director that would allow me he trusted my instincts. And so I did a series on psychic phenomena. Mm -hmm. And that's where I brought in I didn't know it at the time, Russell Targ, who'd been training spies for the CIA. I didn't know what we were looking at with this Soviet experiment he brought back and I got the tape for. And so I did the story on things. I didn't have any idea what I was tripping into until later. And now he and I have done recent pieces and talked about what was going on back then. And I brought in people who were investigating crimes for the police department, cold cases, and did a series on psychic phenomena for them. And then started doing a noontime show. Uh, we experimented with a good news show. Well, that didn't last. People are addicted to bad news. Mm. But in that, I was very experimental and brought in a channeler to talk about the process of channeling, and no one had heard of it at the time. And, um, you know, people loved it. The audience loved it. They didn't feel threatened, you know. It was all fresh and new. The 1980s was a huge time uh, for the birth of metaphysics, new thought, um, all of that. I mean, tarot, astrology, everything. It was a really hot, and where I lived was kind of a hotbed for that activity in California in the 80s. Right. Yeah. And how would you say your own experiences of psychic phenomena channeling have enhanced or guided your life? Well, it's, it's prime to what I am, who I am mm. and how I understand life. Mm. Um, I continue to explore through 
kind of different lenses and mechanisms, but in the early times, um, I started realizing that working with that phenomena came naturally. So I'd throw myself in courses, you know, something on psychometry, um, a little remote viewing, a color therapy, past life regression. I did all of it. I wanted to try it all. And I found it was all pretty accessible. And it started, at, and because it was, I started having access to that kind of data very early on. Metaphysics, the study of metaphysics, started filling in all of those blanks and really creating a, well, like I said earlier, almost a complete mosaic of the underpinnings of my own psyche. Mm. And I thought it was, I mean, I can't imagine trying to navigate life without an understanding of the hidden forces that create reality and especially our own personal realities. Yeah. So that's just the basis I, I live from. Yeah, no, and it's all throughout the book and all your experiences. And just jumping ahead a little bit, one of the things that you touch on in the book is the conspiracy theory world. Yeah. And it's something I've really enjoyed talking to you about because I think um, there are so many ideas out there. And to me, conspiracy theories are like the supercharged energy in the spiritual world. It's kind of attracts people. It, repels people, it horrifies people. It's kind of like one of the most crackling energies in the world of spirituality and consciousness. And I definitely think it's important to investigate that stuff. But I also, for myself, felt there was a lot of fear and problematic uh, information and confusion for people. So as someone who has been in the heart of it, interviewed everybody, mm-hmm. what, what do you think is the best lens through which we should look at conspiracy theory and type information? Well, I was attracted to it because I'm always looking for that kind of thing that's operating behind the scenes, behind the veil. And so it's hidden. Mm. And conspiracy by nature, of calling conspiracy, right, is our hidden agendas, hidden collaborations and so forth. So I was personally interested because we could feel some major things were off on this planet. Things were being manipulated in such a way that we shouldn't be experiencing. And it seemed to be coming from some known source from the outside. People can argue and say, yes, we're in this planet that lives between the light and dark realms, and this can be influenced by other realms, but mostly it's being influenced by us. And so I felt it necessary for myself to peel back those layers and find out who is pulling these strings and toward what end. And then because I do have a microphone, you know, I have a venue, and I have for a long time, I decided to start sharing that information for others who were curious. And what I noticed was in my audience, often the men would come in on that particular note of conspiracy. They would, they would come in because they're sensing something's off in their own lives. They're looking to kind of place it externally. They're angry, frustrated sometimes, you know, looking for a new way to be. And conspiracy would give them kind of something to hook into on that masculine energy level, um, including bolstering, sometimes even reinforcing the anger to a ridiculous extent. But it opened them up to hearing new stories. And then once they were there, in the case of Conscious Media Network or Open Minds, I'd find that the men would then start opening up to the more healing material that I do and start inquiring a little more deeply there. 
Because once you start crossing over into extraterrestrial experience and such, then you have a potential to stay in conspiracy or really go into other stories that can contain elements of healing. Yeah. And so they'd start crossing over into the other materials. Women would often come in through emotional pain, exhaustion, or an illness of some kind, relationships. And so they would go right for the healing material and then start expanding out and find themselves intrigued with the outside world more mm. and then start tiptoeing into conspiracy. So I had to handle it in a way that I felt was responsible for both ends and also not be gratuitous about it and, and propose information that you can't do a darn thing about. Mm. If you can't engage somehow on some level internally, then I don't think you should really beat a dead horse on that mm -hmm. issue. Mm -hmm. But I have put up almost every kind of subject, and if I feel there's a way for people to make a choice away from this thing, then I will, I will cover it. I don't shy away from those stories. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the, I remember the very first time I was coming to be interviewed by you, and I didn't know you at the time. I was full of admiration for you, and I was intimidated. And normally I'm, I'm fine with interviews, but because it was you, and because you were such a master, I was like, oh, well, how's this going to go? And, uh, and I remember being in the control room watching you interview the person before me that day. And one of the things that I noticed immediately with you that I really loved and that made me feel safe is this person was talking about something that they had received as a psychic message. And they started talking about it. And you asked, well, what did the message say? And what they said was very doom and gloom, very fear-based. And they were running off with it, and I watched you wrangle them back, not because of them, but because of you knowing what vibration you wanted to put out to your audience. Right. And because I had the same resonance of seeing the when people are running off with their own fear or what's triggering them and espousing it as a truth to the rest of the world, I always remember thinking that was a very masterful moment. Um, and I think you hold a, a real special place in people's hearts because of the healing side of what you do. You're investigating, mm. you're investigating all of the information, but you also are here for the healing. And on that note... The disease in you do this too. Right. It's the same balance. Right. They acknowledge there are forces that are yeah. manipulating humanity, making it challenging for you, but don't focus your attention there. You keep rising up amidst that. Yes. Yeah. So one healing aspect that's very big for you personally that, mm. that shows up in the book is dance. And oh, I yes. love the chapters about ballet and about tango. Tell us what dance has done for you. I, I think, I feel that dance is my most profound, we all have profound means of expression, whatever that may be. For someone it can be bowling. Mm. Um, for another person it can be playing music or writing. And I feel my most uh, tapped in level of communication is dance. And it's not something that I ever pursued on a professional level, obviously, but it's the thing that makes me feel perhaps the most connected, which is with ballet, it's interesting because that's very much solo. You are, it is, takes so much discipline and work and effort with ballet to go to that core of yourself, mm. mentally, emotionally, and physically, literally go to your core just to be able to execute moves. So it really, I think it has a real, not only a strengthening, but there was an objectivity about it. Either you can do the move or you can't. And I had been in such a subjective world, this was just after NBC, that I needed something totally objective. I can either 
do this or I can't do this. I just need to know this is my world. These are the parameters and I have something clear to work toward. So that was an inner strengthening. When it came to Argentine tango some years later, that came to learning to, at a very sublime and subtle level, go into relationship with another person because that dance requires, if you're going to do it at a high level, do it well, it requires absolute presence. You can't even have a thought as a follower. The women are the followers. You can't even have your own thought as a follower because if you think a thought in that moment, you can miss the very next step that's being led because it's all improvised. And so having to learn to follow was that was big because mm. I'm an independent person. <laughs> and I remember the night I'd been dancing a short time, but I learned very fast. And um, so I was already kind of dancing above the level I should have been. And I was getting a little full of myself thinking, oh, I don't want to dance with that guy. He's not very good. It's like, hey, you've been here three weeks. You know, come on. You should, you're lucky anyone will dance with you. So this guy asked me to dance and he didn't, he was no, he didn't feel the music. Mm. He couldn't feel it. And so I, I'm tied to the music because it's running through my blood and my nervous system. And so I'm, we're, it was like this, like a push and pull. It was, more, I don't even know what you want to call it, except something like a car wreck. It was a terrible dance. And he was frustrated and quit after one dance. Normally you have to dance what's called a tanda, a set of three dances be, before you dump the person if you didn't like it. He dumped me after one dance and I thought, oh, thank God, that was awful. And I sat down and I thought, uh-oh, you better learn to follow or quit tonight. That's your choice. And I loved it so much. I thought, I'll learn to follow. Even if they can't hear the music, I'll learn to follow. And I did. And it became a very, very beautiful period of my life because I was getting exhausted with, as a single mom, running my own business, uh, Luminart Productions. At the time, I had the, the National Cooking Show, International, actually, Regina's Vegetarian Table. And so I was, I was the head of that uh, crew. And um, it, it was just, I had a lot of responsibility like a lot of single working moms do. And I had that extra layer of learning to have total reliance on myself, but not much on other people, unless it's a specific role or task. And so having to just open yourself up on such an intimate level where your bodies are pressed, that style of tango, you're pressed right together. It's closer than making love with people in most cases mm -hmm. because your cheeks are together and your bodies are together and you're completely embraced. And to have to move with that stranger um, became my, it, it became almost, um, it was a path of, more than a path of inquiry. I wanted to master that feeling. And that's what tango allowed. I love it because one of the things that has come through the Z's over the years, and I've applied this myself and it's come out in the teachings, is if you want or need to create new energy in your life, go and learn something new. Yes. So that was very smart of you to recognize there was something missing. And I think sometimes people, and, and I've done it too, you think, oh, I need to eliminate something from my life. But actually, sometimes what can you add that's completely exactly. different, that's not all of your other roles? Well, that's so. the group of people we're talking to right now. It's a creative endeavor, a new creative endeavor, to something new to master and within yourself. And new energy through the body, mm -hmm. new energy through the mind. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. So um, I could talk to you for a lot longer than we actually have, but there's one, well, there's one thing I, I just wanted to bring up. You know, you, you talk about your son, Stuart, and you said that 
couple of different things about having your son. So first of all, you didn't think you were supposed to or able to have children. You right. were told you couldn't have children. Right. And then you were able to have Stuart. Mm -hmm. But what horrified me in the book was reading about your C-section and how you was brutal. feel everything because the anesthesia wasn't working. Right. That was not yeah. good. It was, it was, you do not want to have your midsection cut open without anesthetic. That is for sure. <laughs> it, it was very uncomfortable. And I couldn't do anything because they had uh, done a trachea, uh, a trachea treatment where they put the tube down your throat. Yeah. Um, in case I had gone under, which they expected I would, but I didn't. Um, so I couldn't say anything. I couldn't make any noise. And what happens is, your um, musculature becomes paralyzed, so you can't move, hmm. but the nerves were still alive and um, feeling everything. It, was a it's a it happens now and then. It doesn't happen that often. And, you know, they don't know when that is and isn't going to happen. But they were horrified the next day when I told them their conversation while they were doing the C-section on me that I was not asleep and I felt everything. I said, look, I'm not going to, I'm not litigious. I'm not going there. I'm just telling you, you need to find another way to check. One was I had tears running out of my eyes and no one looked, apparently. So that was tough, but everything about it was, um, it was miraculous. It was beautiful. It ended up in that moment painful, but the moments prior to, prior to it were uh, an experience I think very few women ever have, which was I had no pain associated with maximum labor. Mm. There was no pain. I felt like waves of an ocean running through me. I'd gone into... A hypnotic state and through probably because of the trauma in the room I was bleeding out and so my sister was holding my hand she has big blue eyes very calming bedside manner and she said just stay with me and I did and I trusted her energy everyone's running around the room has you know blood and such all over and they're trying to hurry and get my gurney into the OR and I felt completely at peace and no pain it was really quite beautiful I thought wow the miracle of the body like waves of the ocean trying to move this baby from me. Well, had we not been there, we would have both died. The baby was not going to be able to engage and come out properly. He, and he was going into fetal distress as well. Uh, uh, not fetal, but um, is it called fetal distress? When, before sure the baby's born anyway, he was in distress. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what was so powerful about reading that part of the chapter was, you know, you, you, you read what you were experiencing and then you, you top it off like a paragraph later by going, I looked at my son and it was the most beautiful moment. Oh, yeah. So I just thought it was such a parable of life. It was like something very extreme and intense, birthing into this beautiful Beautiful on too. both ends. Never had a day of discomfort uh -huh. while I was pregnant with him. Never had a moment of morning sickness. I, I was just, I felt great mm. right up to the time they wheeled me in the OR and started the procedure. Mm. Yeah. Well, in terms of all of the work that you've done in your life so far, you wrote in the book, I had learned by the age of 26 that a child, money, work, uh, and high-profile work were not keys to happiness. Well, I'm glad that you had that discovery early because you have just been pioneering all, all through your life. I'm curious. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, there are so many amazing stories and chapters in this book. I recommend everybody gets it. What was the experience for you of releasing this very personal, revealing book? Well, um, because I tend to be quite private, I don't expose a lot of myself through my work, per se. Just little moments here and there in an interview or maybe a little blog, I'll share something personal. Um, there was a, just a, a modicum of nervousness that that's my life 
and anybody can drop in on it and experience it. And so I did when it when it was very first uh, posted to Amazon, I did feel a little bit vulnerable. But then I started seeing the comments from people, and it started calming me down right away because I thought. You can look at a life lived like this from a lot of different levels, yeah. and a person could be very judgmental because it looks like a life that has no master plan, but it has its plan coming from the higher aspect of myself, which doesn't look like what you would put on paper as a master plan. Yeah, and I live by that part. So you can look at it and say, "Wow,、uh, you know, she was stubborn.、Um, she certainly screwed up on that decision there." But each thing led me to the place I needed to go, and the experience you were talking about in the airplane of knowing that money and high-profile、um, career wasn't going to do it for me was watch. I was sitting in first class, and a family got on for Christmas. I was going to another playoff game for NBC,、uh, another first-class hotel and flight and everything, and、um, they had their little bags of presents, and they were obviously going to see family. And my heart was just crushed. I thought I'm going to another hotel room by myself to do another game. I don't have any of that. Those are the things that matter: your family, love, you know, sharing. And so that's when I realized that wasn't going to be the thing that brought me that deep satisfaction in life. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm glad that that happened for you, and that that has underpinned everything that you've、mm -hmm. done. So, what's next for you? I know you have ReginaMeredith.com. You have your show on Gaia Open Minds, and on ReginaMeredith.com, you do your own. Interviews. I know you're about to start adding a whole load of other things to ReginaMeredith.com. Other、am. shows and I am, and I do.、Um, I also do workshops, like weekend workshops.、Mm -hmm. um, I really backed off on it this year because I was having a hard time juggling both my site and Gaia,、yeah. um, and finding the time to do those as well. But I'm going to start picking the workshops back up again because those intimate gatherings, people just seem to go away floating. They just love them. We go into a lot of regression and. Um, guided meditation and so forth, and I enjoy doing that. And that's the next project I'm doing is I'm going to release some of my meditations、mm. and help people with different aspects of their life in just a very gentle way. I like doing everything gently to be a respite for people, which is so needed. Yes, so that's happening. And、um, yeah, we're,、um, I'm thinking I'm toying with some other ideas on my site of being able to have people access me one on one if they'd like to. And just have a either a conversation, or we can define some topics that we'd really like to drill down into together. I'm comfortable with either one, so we'll just see from there. I do allow myself to be led one thing at a time. The progression comes very naturally for me, and ultimately,、uh, I'm with Gaia for a while longer. Right now, I'm enjoying myself there, but there'll come a time when I'll have to go my own direction because I won't have the time to do both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love what you just share about one thing at a time because I think that's often the thing people have a creative big vision or a plan for themselves. Those who do have that, and it can be overwhelming, and it's you build it one brick at a time. So indeed, and one thing I'm going to be forced to do, which I really re re rejected up to this point, is more social media. And I thought, you know, just change your view on it.、Yeah. So I'm going to be sharing more glimpses of life, and I will be、um, focusing more on another part of my site called the Art of Balanced Living. Which is actually a project I was going to do 15 years ago, and I thought now's the perfect time. Little snippets of、uh, dealing with something in everyday life, making a smoothie recipe I found in London that like everybody loves, and just starting to blend back some of my cooking show days, my metaphysical days, and observations into little short videos that will be posted 
through social media. And I think that'll be, for me, that's a big stretch because it's very personal. That's great though. I love how it's all coming yeah. together. And for anybody listening or watching who has enjoyed this interview, I would greatly, greatly recommend that you go and pick up a copy of Accidentally On Purpose, Tripping Through Life with Regina. It's available through Amazon or reginameredith.com or other, other bookstores, right? Mm -hmm. Mostly through Amazon. That's the easiest okay. path for everybody. Fantastic. Yeah. And Lee, I have to tell you, this is your first time doing this as the interviewer yes. in this role. We flip positions and you did a very graceful and beautiful job. Thank you very much. You're very good at this. I feel, I feel knighted by you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thanks, thank Regina. You. you have been listening to Impact the World. For more of my work, please visit leeharrisenergy.com. And to attend my five-day Impact the World in-person training event held in Scottsdale, Arizona in April 2020, visit leeharrisenergy.com forward slash impact.